We are picking up again this morning with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, turning our attention to the last five verses of chapter 3, that is Romans three twenty-seven to 31. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn up that passage uh, in your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to make use of the passage printed in the bulletin. And before we look into that any further, let's pray together. Father God, please... Please help us as we turn our attention once again to this wonderful and yet wonderfully complex letter in which your apostle, our brother, Paul, outlined some of the deepest, most significant truths of our Christian faith. So help us to get our hearts and minds in gear so that we don't miss the importance of the things preserved here for us. Help us to to hear and listen well to what we need to hear, both individually, which will have elements of both uniqueness and similarity from one person to the next. And then help us to hear this corporately as a body of believers, so that we see the implications on at least those two levels uh, all the time. Thank you in advance for all that you will do in this regard and beyond. Uh, We're thankful, especially at these moments, that you do more than we think or ask. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've seen in previous studies, in this letter of missionary introduction, the Apostle Paul is trying to solicit the support of the Roman Church for his ongoing missionary endeavors hoping to turn his attention from the east, where he has been working for quite some time, to the west, where he wants to begin working in hopes of bringing the gospel all the way to the people in Spain. In order to facilitate that process, I concur with the perspective that says that this letter was part of Paul's efforts to relocate his base of operations from a place called Antioch in the east to Rome, which was much further west. And in order to do that, he would need the support of the Roman church to pull that off. If he was going to acquire the support of the Roman church, he needed to introduce himself to the majority of the people there. He knew some of the people, but most of them didn't know him because he didn't plant that church. And Paul needed to assure them that he was the right man for the job, that they really ought to support him in this endeavor, and they should respect him as an apostle. So with that goal in mind, Paul, among other things, is eager to share with the Romans a kind of summary of his theological position on some of the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, If he wants them to have confidence in him as a preacher and as a teacher of the gospel, then he needs to take some time to explain to them just what that gospel is. Most of them, again, haven't heard him. He needs to tell them what he's been telling other people. Uh, about themselves and about God and about Jesus and the cross and how all those things work together. So that's a big part of what's going on in this letter, maybe the main part of what's going on in this letter, although not the only part. So how does Paul approach all this? Well, at the beginning of the letter, uh, after some introductory remarks, Paul starts with this brief but dense theological thesis statement uh, where he talks about the gospel as the power of God for the salvation of of everyone who believe, and then with that he goes on to say how actually the gospel functions in that way. And the answer is because in it, and perhaps by means of it, God bestows an undeserved righteousness upon his sinful uh, and thoroughly unrighteous people, thereby making them right with himself. And that's pretty much the extent of Paul's opening statement. He doesn't go much beyond that. 
From there he shifts gears so that following this really good news, this briefest of introduction of good news about the righteousness of God, Paul launches into an extended section where he deals with a lot of bad news. Why does he do that? He does it in order to show why it is that all people are in desperate need of this righteousness that God freely provides. To put it another way, Paul shows them the extent of their disease in order that they might value and embrace the cure. He's showing them the x-ray that displays the cancer that is killing them. That is what Paul's doing for the remainder of chapter 1 all the way up through verse 18 of chapter 3. And after this, after dishing out a lot of bad news, Paul returns to his opening statement about the righteousness of God, the cure, so to speak, in order that he could now expand upon it, which is what he's doing. This we've been looking at the last time we were in Romans, uh, just before the holidays. We took three weeks to look at Romans three nineteen to 26, where we saw a number of important things in just those few verses. Uh, firstly, and before we thought very deeply about what the phrase, the righteousness of God, actually means, we spent some time focusing on how this concept, the righteousness of God, relates to the law of God. And in looking at that, we saw both that the law, what the law is not for and what it doesn't do, as well as what the law is for and what it does do, at least according to these verses. In short, we saw that the law was never intended to be used as a means of earning a right standing with God. Never intended to be used that way. It was intended, however, to give us a knowledge of sin. It was intended for that, both objectively and subjectively, as well as being given in order to implicate the whole world, to render the whole world accountable to God. In other words, whatever the righteousness of God is, it isn't about law-keeping. Our second look at 319 to 26, we continue to look at this concept of the righteousness of God, starting with a proper definition, and saw that all it, it, is a, it is a right standing, a right relating with God that comes about not as a consequence of something that we do, but as a consequence of our trusting in something that Jesus did. We saw further that the reason we need a righteousness from God and of God is because in ourselves we are broken and sinful and fall far short of the glory of God, which we're meant to image or display. We saw further that the only reason we have any possibility of obtaining this kind of right standing with God is simply because God's determined in his heart that he wants to make it so, that he wants to be kind and gracious to his people. Because God is determined, in other words, for his own reasons... Purely his own reasons, not out of any sense of obligation or compulsion to us, but he's determined to freely bestow upon undeserving people the gift of his righteousness. Continuing to look hard at verses 19 to 26, we saw that the ground or the foundation upon which the righteousness of God is built is the cross of Christ. And we spent some time unpacking what that involved, at least as outlined here, which was four concepts, justification, uh, redemption, propitiation, and vindication. Lots of big words. Uh, we looked at justification. We saw that it's the Bible word used to describe God's determination to pardon and forgive the sinful person, to accept him as righteous, that is, standing in a right relation with himself, on account of their having been credited with the righteousness of another, namely Jesus. Secondly, we looked at redemption. We saw that was kind of a marketplace concept that the Bible employs to talk about our being enslaved to sin, to talk about how the penalty for, and the wage for that sin is death, and then finally show how Christ paid our bill, so to speak, in our place. And by that price, he ransomed us, bought us back, redeemed us, delivered us from slavery to sin into the freedom that we have in Christ. 
Then we looked at propitiation. We saw how it referred to the fact that through Christ's death on the cross, God's perfectly justifiable anger against humanity because of its sin, that was fully satisfied. That anger was real. Not a fiction, as some theologians want to say. It was real, but it was fully satisfied and addressed in the person of His Son. And the reason it was addressed for God and by God is because there would have been no other way for it to have been addressed. In other words, if God had not determined to do something about His own wrath over sin, it would never have been resolved. It could never have been resolved. Fourthly, when we look at the concept of vindication, we saw how the cross of Christ... In the cross of Christ, God's reputation, if I can put it that way, was cleared. God's postponed judgment, you see, uh, in dealing with sin, that is, His decision to not fully deal and finally deal with sin until historically Christ came along, right? Many, many years after God created the war, uh, began the creation. But God's decision to act in that way, to do things in that way, left Him unjustifiably liable to unfounded criticisms and wrong conclusions being formed about his purposes and character and person. But the cross vindicated all of that. The cross cleared all of that up once and for all. And finally, after looking at all of that, we looked at the crucial place of faith as the alone means by which God, uh, God's people come into possession of this righteousness that he freely gives, but he instrumentally bestows through faith. And this faith that we exercise is not, is not a meritorious thing. Um, it's not a credit for us. It doesn't make us. Our uh, trusting God does not um, make us deserving of God's mercy because of that act of trusting. It is simply the vehicle, the instrument through which we come to embrace His grace and His mercy toward us. By faith we place our trust and confidence not in anything we've done, but in something that's been done by Christ his life, his death, his resurrection for us on our behalf. That's where we left Paul in our last look at this letter. And it's on the heels of those kind of statements that Paul comes in with the following words. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, In these verses, we have, um, we have Paul's anticipation, either coming out of his past experiences from dealing with people. This is not the first time he's taught this stuff, right? I mean, he's dealt with a lot of people on this, so it's either coming out of his past experience or simply his wisdom as a teacher, or both. But we have his anticipation of three questions coming from his readers, particularly from his Jewish readers, on account of the things he's just said in 19 to 26. The three questions are, this first question, this rather curious question about boasting, uh, this second question about God's relationship to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, and a third question about the law, what we're supposed to do with it. Firstly, let's think about the anticipated question regarding boasting found in verses 27 to 28. Um, now, r- right off the bat, if you are like many people, you'll be reading these words and perhaps scratching your head a little bit 
and wondering what precisely this objection is about. So let me try and clarify it. Um, Paul's just finished talking about how this right relationship with God that we need but cannot obtain is the very thing that God himself has supplied through what Christ did. And so our only response is to place our trust in the work that God's accomplished. That, in a nutshell, is what Paul's been talking about. So in response to that, the first question or objection is, then what becomes of our boasting? This is Paul's Jewish audience speaking. What becomes of our boasting? If I could paraphrase that, hey, if all of that is true, Paul, if that's really how God saves people, then we, we don't have anything we can boast about. We have, you've taken away any chance whatsoever, any kind of bragging rights or anything that allows us to say that we have somehow deserved the mercy of God that we've been shown. You've taken all that away. Now that might sound pretty brazen to you, even facetious in some ways, but you have to understand what Paul was dealing with. Paul grew up as a Jewish man. Paul knew all about the Jews and their pride, extreme pride, in their heritage, in their position, and their special status before God. He knew all about it because he shared it. That's where he was for much of his life. Listen to Paul's language from Philippians 3 where he gives this brief biographical sketch of himself, at, you know, at least at this point in his life. Listen to what he says. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, which he meant in a good sense, right? We think bad, but he meant really good. As to the law of Pharisee, as, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, also he meant as a good thing. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Imagine saying that. But whatever gain I had, I, count, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And can you hear the, um, the pride dripping off of how Paul once viewed himself? Paul was a very proud man. And he would live in that way in the midst of a whole nation of proud people. So Paul knew what he was dealing with here when he wrote this letter. He knew that the Jews in his audience would find much of what he said really hard to swallow. Because they were used to thinking of themselves as people who had a, a spiritual leg up on everybody else. They were the ones with all the advantages. And, and Paul would be the first one to admit that they had real advantages as God's people. But he would also be the first one to say that those advantages were limited. And they did not exempt the Jewish people from the judgment of God. Nor did it mean that they had some privileged access to God that was fundamentally any different than that of the Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles had access to God in the same way through faith quite apart from the works of the law. So in response to the objection that Paul was essentially leveling the playing field between the Jews and Gentiles, Paul's response is, exactly. That is what I'm doing. What becomes of our boasting? What becomes of our assumptions about our privileged status? Answer, it's excluded. How is it excluded? Because the gospel leaves no room. It leaves no room for boasting. 
It leaves the forgiven sinner with nothing left to boast in or about. There's no great spiritual effort to which one can point. There's no spiritual track record that has merited God's attention or favor. There's not a single thing to which you can look and feel as if somehow you have contributed something meaningful to this outcome or process. Not one single thing. Which is why the gospel is such a huge stumbling block to the proud person. It delivers a massive blow to our egos as as we cannot bear the thought that we cannot possibly lay any claim on God, that we cannot somehow put God in our debt or manipulate Him into a situation whereby He owes us something, where He's beholding to us in some way. In other words, we, we cannot stand the thought that we will never be able to turn the tables such that we are God and it is He that must answer to us and respond to us because our life demands it. Now there are any number of implications that might flow out of this fact that the gospel does address us at the point of our pride and leaves no room for boasting. Uh, Let me just give you two. There's many more. One is this. Uh, It has implications for how we pray for other people. When you're thinking about that person, that friend or family member or neighbor, that you're pretty sure doesn't know Christ and has not heard the gospel, and as you're praying for them and thinking about how and when you're going to tell them about Jesus, which I hope you're thinking about that, pray at least for this, that God will humble them. Pray that God will vanquish their pride, or at least vanquish it enough where it doesn't stand in the way of their being willing to embrace a salvation that they can take no credit for whatsoever. Pride is a huge barrier to embracing the gospel, and we need to be praying that God will, specifically, I think, that God will take that away, and He'll deal with that. A second implication has to do with praise or praising God. You see, if the gospel is the great antidote to our deadly pride, then praise is, among other things, the barometer of how all of that is going. When we sing a song of praise to God or make declarations about Him that do the same, when we do those kinds of things, we are defiantly saying that we're not here because we feel that we personally have something to boast about. That's not... Why we're here? We're here because we have someone to boast about. And that someone is not us. And the quality of our praise, the urgency of our praise, the sincerity of our praise, the level of engagement that we evidence as we're doing, all those things are, or at least can be, an indicator of how well we are understanding the truth, this truth about ourselves and about what God has done that we could not do. Conversely, our lack of engagement with praise is, I think, also pretty telling. But it's not just about us, right? Because our uh, fully entering into these moments that we set aside, like Sunday mornings here, where we corporately praise God together, can be a great encouragement and reminder to ourselves, of course, but also to each other. And why we're here and what we're grateful for. There's a great opportunity when we come together like this, to assist each other in the continued dismantlement of our pride. 
by the manner in which we praise God and the manner in which we encourage one another. And this is why the praise in heaven, the worship we will experience before God will be like nothing we've ever experienced here. Heaven will be all about the praise of God and we'll be glad for it because there, finally, our wretched pride will be fully and forever vanquished. There will be nothing within us No vestige of sin that will want to compete with God. That will want to rival God in any way. Or claim his prerogatives or stand in the way. The worship of heaven will be unhindered, absolutely unhindered by our egos. And it will be glorious. It will be like nothing we have ever seen here. Nothing here has even come close to what that would be like. So the first question is the question about boasting and pride, which the Jews were quite given to, but which the gospel completely obliterates. And there's all kinds of implications that flow out of that. The second question is found in verses 29 to 30. also comes out of the Jewish propensity in Paul's day, at least, for being extremely conscious, entirely too conscious, of their special relationship with God, feeling very protective about that, feeling very exclusive about the whole thing. And the unspoken, I think, but implied objection in these verses would be something along the lines of, again, paraphrase, but, uh, you know, hang on a minute, Paul, because it sounds like you're saying that our God, the God of our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God is also the God of the Gentiles. You're saying that God's concerned for the Gentiles too. Is that what you're saying? Because it sounds like that's what you're saying. Is that what you're saying? And of course, that's precisely what Paul's saying, which really shouldn't have been all that surprising, but sadly it was. The tragic reality is that this outward focus, this uh, positive outlook, this notion of being a vehicle for God's blessing for those outside of Israel, um, seems to have been a very difficult thing for God's people to ever really grasp or easily accept. But it shouldn't have been. I mean, all the way back at the beginning, when God set Abraham apart, God determined to bless him and make his covenant with him. He had this to say to him. He says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From the very beginning of this covenant relationship with with his people, God's intention was that they would be a channel of blessing to the other nations. They were to have that kind of perspective about who they were. They were to have that kind of heart. But that was not how it was. All their advantages, and they were real advantages, but they seemed to consistently become a basis for ethnic pride, for feeling superior for exercising a narrow exclusivism. And so where their undeserved advantages were meant to produce humility amongst them, it actually resulted in pride. Where God's mercy toward them should have produced gratitude, it seemed to result, more more often than not, in a sense of entitlement or complacency. Where they were meant to be a light and witness to the nations, they tended to become instead a despiser and judge of the nations around them. Does that sound familiar at all? 
We're the people of God in Paul's day, the last ones to have struggled and failed in this regard. Should not the people of God in our own day be asking themselves questions? Should we not be asking ourselves questions? And wondering out loud whether we are prone to the same kinds of woeful tendencies. How easy it is for us to be complacent. How easy it is for us to have the same kind of sense of entitlement with regard to God's kindness and God's mercy toward us. How easy it is for us to, on the one hand, espouse great gratitude for God's mercy and yet never feel compelled in the least to speak of that mercy to other people who are as badly in need of it as we remain. How easy it is for us to feel disdain and to be judgmental toward the unchurched and want to distance ourselves from them rather than being moved with compassion toward them. And so be a channel of light and blessing that we're always meant to be. It seems like Paul's addressing his Jewish brothers and sisters, and he is, but really he's addressing us. Third question, the third anticipation here is found in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Again, if I could paraphrase what's going on with this objection, it would be something like this. Um, look, Paul, if it really is about faith, if that is the response to God that matters, and not law-keeping, what are we doing with the law? What are we supposed to do with the law? Isn't that what you're saying? Uh, isn't, isn't what you're saying completely undermining or invalidating any role whatsoever for the law? Paul doesn't go directly into it here, and so we're not going to say a lot about this question at this point, but the answer to this question is something that Paul will have a lot more to say about later on in this letter. Indeed, he's already had some things to say about it, pointing out the the role of the law as the means by which God shows that the world really is guilty and sinful and thus accountable to him, liable to his wrath and judgment. So Paul's already said some things about the usefulness of the law in that kind of negative sense. However, in chapters 6 to 8 of Romans, Paul will have a great deal more to say about what might be termed as the positive role of the law and the Christian's faithfulness to it. And essentially what Paul is going to argue there is that obedience and faithfulness to the law by which we cannot save ourselves, right? By keeping it, we cannot save ourselves. It's nevertheless the thing that through the working of God's Spirit will become the growing circumstantial evidence that shows that we have been saved by God. Which is why Paul strongly objects to the notion that his teaching about the gospel essentially overthrows the law. The truth is it does nothing of the sort. The only thing Paul's teaching has overthrown is a wrong use of the law, a wrong perspective on the law, on its purpose. In every other respect, his teaching has done nothing but uphold the law. Indeed, his teaching has upheld the law in its truest sense because his teaching has centered upon the one to whom the law, that is the scriptures, have been pointing all along. Further, his teaching has upheld the law because it ultimately leads to the covenant faithfulness. And this is key. His teaching about the law and the gospel 
ultimately leads to the covenant faithfulness which the law portrays, but which it cannot by itself produce. It portrays it, it cannot produce it. Only the gospel can do that. Only God's spirit working in his people can do that. And that fascinating dynamic, the law portraying what it cannot produce, is one I look forward to exploring together a little further down the road. In the meantime, in our next time together, we're going to see how Paul's example of Abraham in Romans 4, 1 to 25, turns out to be actually a great illustration of the very things he's been speaking about in the verses before us this morning. I look forward to seeing that together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for once humbling us by saving us in a way that underscores our utter need for you and at the same time our absolute inability to do anything about it. Thank you for your continuing to humble us as we daily struggle to accept your sovereignty over all of our lives. Help us to get to the place where, as it was for Paul, you become our one consistent boast, even as all other boasting falls away. Help us also, Father, to not become paralyzed in the midst of our very real blessings and advantages as your people, such that we do not move with compassion and intention toward those who are outside your community of of covenant people. Help us to so value your mercy toward us and to so want others to experience the same that we are moved outside of what is comfortable and safe and into the blessed riskiness of speaking up and of introducing others to you. Please accomplish this within us and so much more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll now take up an offering for those who want to support the work of this church, the ministries of this church, and other ministries that are supported through this congregation.